You're listening to Amphibicast. Hey everyone, again I'm happy to welcome Alex Menke of Frog Daddy. And in the last episode we spent a lot of time kind of talking shop about how Alex got involved with dart frogs and how he started his business and some of the nuances of having a dart frog based business and basically you know what what does it mean to um, take something that you really really love deep down inside and transform it into a successful business now Alex welcome back thank you <laughs> um, this episode we're gonna kind of st- we're gonna st- kind of stray away from where we were before we're gonna talk more about um, some topics that relate to con- conservation and you know we've sort of talked about the hobby in captivity kind of in this man-made construct that we've created but we're going to talk now about issues that represent concerns in terms of wild populations of amphibians the environment and habitat loss now just i know you gave us your 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 create your credentials in the last episode but in case anybody missed it you want to just tell us again about about your education I mean, you actually you, you did your graduate work exclusively studying dark frogs am i correct i did yes Yep. So basically, I went to my undergrad. I got a BS in biology at Queens University of Charlotte. Uh, Then I moved up to Michigan to do my MS in ecology, evolution, and organismal biology. Um, I did a non-thesis track uh, because I had intended on getting my doctorate, of course. And (laughs) now here we are running a dart frog business instead. So may still get that doctorate, but I was going to do a thesis during that time period. So instead I did a course intensive, uh, an extra six credit hours um, instead of doing a thesis, but I did multiple uh, research papers, summaries, meta-analyses on dart frogs, uh, various topics from looking at toxin transmission uh, in vivo through uh, in Ufaga pamilio, all the way to mimetic radiations in Ranitomea imitator, looking at aposematic coloration uh, how it the role of aposematic coloration in predator response. Uh, so I've done quite a bit on dart frogs. Uh, so definitely decently versed in the literature. Um, the big big topic for my uh, master's was basically looking at things that are affecting the environment and ecological parameters um, affecting amphibians. So I definitely have some some field there. Now, obviously, amphibians are arguably the the biggest indicator group of animals on the planet. Um, We've all become aware of issues like chytrid and whatnot. And I I think that a lot of people tend to look at different threats with different levels of enthusiasm, meaning there are people who are very, very adamantly against field collecting. And there are many other issues, primarily, let's just say habitat loss, that account for arguably a, a, a greater majority of threats towards amphibians in general. I mean, what's, what's, your, what's your thoughts on that? Um, my stance is right aligned with yours. I do believe, though, one of the largest effect sizes to uh, a lot of these uh, poison dart frogs is habitat loss. And ha- habitat, not even just habitat loss, but habitat degradation. Um, so whether that's, uh, you know, harvesting, uh, cutting down trees, uh, which is mostly agriculture to dumping, 
and excess amounts of sewage, uh, which is really secondary to agriculture. Um, to a lot of other issues, I think that habitat loss is one of the biggest biggest problems that we see. Um, and it doesn't necessarily always mean that for just the larger uh, larger mammals or larger species, which you see a very, uh, a very, uh, it's very noticeable effect when you lose habitat. Uh, things like, I don't want to stray too far, but things like bears and wolves um, have a lot of, you know, they need a lot of space uh, for resources and mating. Uh, mountain lions are a great example. Uh, they, they need a large territory to survive. And when you see humans move in, you see plantations, you see uh, agriculture where you're where you're cattle farming, uh, a lot of that destroys that precious habitat and those resource, uh, those allocated resources to where those animals have to move somewhere else. Now with dart frogs, you kind of do see that, but it's on a lesser scale um, than the larger animals, but it's still definitely a problem. I mean, you might have, I mean, anyone who's, who's familiar with dart frogs knows is there are there's quite a few species, but there is almost an innumerable number of locales. So you yes. might have an import that will come in, and its only identification is its locale. So Correct. you might have a locale that only exists on maybe a few square miles of river. And yep. even with and that's um, the biggest thing right there. Yep. Yeah. Correct. Like even like with imitators, um, I was reading an article. This was actually about a year ago, but. Um, this scientist had essentially made a map of where every um, what's the, what's the word I should be looking for? It really shouldn't be morph, should it? it of, and of, you know what? We I can hate get to into use that, that word. But it's it's it is locality. Uh, most of the dart frogs are locales. There are a few morphs though, but we don't have to get into that debate. They yeah, are different okay. though. I would use locales in Let's, this situation. Okay, agreed. I agreed wholeheartedly. Well, in any event, this scientist had made the, the, this very, very detailed map, and it's amazing how just seemingly insignificant natural barriers, you know, a, a creek that oh, you could yeah. probably hop across was this barrier, and there was so much gen genetic diversity in this larger area, but within smaller areas, this, this locale existed exclusively there. So if you were to lose this to, say, agriculture or, or development, you would essentially lose that locale forever, whereas say like you know a larger a larger more well-known species that is in you know people's minds in terms of conservation i mean yes wolves need a very very large area to thrive in but let's just say there's a difference between living on a million acres and someone comes in and takes out a thousand <laughs> acres as opposed Correct. to living on one acre and someone takes that whole acre right and you, you do see that a lot of the uh, Ranitomea, even you can spread it to the to the genus level, not even the species. You see a lot of natural hybrids um, forming along these rivers in small pockets, whether that's allopatric or sympatrically speciation is, is starting to occur. And it's mostly based on predator response, which is what I did my crowd work in. But but yeah, I mean, you have a point there. There's these specific color patterns especially an imitator, they're imitating a variabilis or something like that, or a fantasca. And those are the only places that they're found. And they're found there for very specific reasons. A lot of sexual selection and predator predation pressure is pushing those genes 
to look, you know, for them to look a certain way, a certain phenotype. Um, but yeah, if someone were to come in and say build a resort or they're tearing this down for a cattle farm or whatever it may be, which the latter tends to be the case, um, that's gone forever. And there's a lot of issues uh, surrounding that. And there's instances surrounding that. And that is one reason why we're kind of blessed in a way. It's kind of a weird word for it, but we're kind of blessed that wild caught exists. Um, and I'm not necessarily for or against wild caught, but people need to remember that all these animals came from somewhere. Now, a lot of these animals were smuggled illegally before they were, you know, before the mainstream came in with permits, uh, companies like Understory uh, or Tesoros came in and said, hey, we're going to legalize this. We're going to do this the right way um, and then export them, you know, but a lot of our beautiful animals that we've come to know and love actually do end up being wild. You know, they are all wild caught specimens to begin with. Um, so there is a critical role in wild caught. And I think that that, you know, it doesn't need to be demonized to the way that some, some of it is. I think that there's always a time and a place for it before these places are completely wiped out. There's a lot of protected area and there's a lot of area that's not protected at all. So I think that there there comes a time and a place for wild caught animals. I mean, I think that a lot of, you know, the, the attitude towards wild caught has changed within recent years. And by recent, I, I actually mean like probably within the past 20. But, um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when I started out in the hobby, everything was wild caught. And yep. <laughs> my first this was long beforehand, but I, um, I knew, I actually worked at a, a big box pet store and, um, this was back in the mid nineties. And there was a gentleman who was, uh, he was an importer and his daughter went to a karate school, a few buildings over. So he would come out and he would just sort of, you know, he would BS with us and we would just kind of, you know, shoot the breeze. And he said, Oh, you know, do you guys want to get dart frogs? He goes, I'm, I'm importing them. And I was so intimidated because <laughs> I, I, I knew nothing other than the fact that they were brightly colored and that they were poison. So I really had no way of knowing what was right and what was wrong, et cetera. But, you know, at the time it's not that it, it, it's not necessarily that things were against the law. It's just that there were no laws, you know, yeah, there was, yeah. there was obviously things let's, it's undeniable. Things came in under questionable circumstances, but yeah, but there was lesser regulation and you're absolutely correct about that. Yes. And the taxonomy was different. So, yeah, I mean, at the time, different. like in the eighties, my, my first, the, the, the first time I ever saw a dart frog was, uh, it was a the strawberry pumilio, mm -hmm. uh, blue jeans in national geographic. I want to say around 85, 86, 87. And at the time, they were still in the Dendrobates genus. Yep. So you correct. have more species that have been correctly identified or are being closer to being identified now, and their need for conservation is is being reevaluated as time goes by. So it's one thing to say, all right, well, you know, Dendrobates tinctorius. It, there's however many locales out there, but it's still the same species. So correct. So in a conservation standpoint, yep, you're right. So mm -hmm. it's only tinctorious, which is kind of why I said that the the species has to be it there there ha it has to go a step further. Kind of like we were talking about, it's it's locality based because we we just haven't divulged. I mean, why are they different? 
are they different species? Are they really the same? You know, are we looking at species from a biological standpoint? Is it the biological species concept? Are we just going based on if they can reproduce together? Um, you know, there's a lot of gray areas in what defining a species really is. And I don't want to branch off into that, but we do have to think about that from a conservation standpoint. Are we protecting enough of these species or are we just protecting all tanks and we're lumping them into one hole? You know, so got to think about that because a lot of tanks are very rare, like, say, Table Mountain or Kotori River. There's some of these that only appear in very small pockets. Those are the two I was going to mention, actually. <laughs> I mean, is, is there, a, you know, a specific species or locale that comes to mind that you think, you know, just on a, on a, on a basic level is in eminent danger of, you know, being, becoming extinct or just becoming extinct in the wild? I shouldn't say just becoming extinct in the wild, but which species do you think faces the greatest threat when it comes to dark frogs? I think, um, and this is, I don't live there. So again, this is going to be anecdotal and somewhat empirical evidence I've collected from some people that do live there. Um, true nominal Fantastica habitat is being destroyed at an alarming rate. Um, Josh Allen has kind of worked with this species a little bit, uh, tying water bottles to trees, um, trying to get more breeding sites for them uh, because a lot of their, uh, and before I talked about habitat degradation, not just habitat loss completely. Um, a lot of their habitat is getting turned into roads and and there's there's a lot of trees being cut down. So the area gets more sunlight and a lot of new things like grasses will come through. Things that don't really support this animal. So the the loss of breeding sites is a is a big thing. And another one besides Fantasca, I mean, is Benedicta. And I think the story of Benedicta is a lot more sinister, and I'm not going to go into it, but it does have to do with a certain group of people that I will not name that are over-harvesting these. And just about five years ago, they were a lot more prevalent in the normal, you know, in their normal path, whereas now it is becoming very difficult to find them. Um, and I think that could be overexploitation, um, which is, you know, it's, it happens to certain animal species. They're either poached or exported too much or whatever. And a combination of habitat loss and overexploitation can be the doom of certain locales or species. Um, we haven't really seen a lot of that yet. Um, and and like you and like we said before, some locales like. Excitabates mysteriosus only occur in very, very small pockets. So those pockets are usually protected. But if they're not and they're open, and I mean, this is not to mention some somewhat lawless country. I mean, people don't really, from what I know, respect the respect the barriers uh, in the in the jungle. So yeah, I mean, we'll we'll yeah, we'll that's that's, that's a the, we're gonna avoid the any you know political commentary yeah, or anything yeah, like that. Yeah. But I think that w what we'll agree on in a, in a very general term is that there are places where certain locales, certain species are being over-harvested to the point where they just cannot be sustained for a, a number of reasons. Now, um, that said, I mean, let's just think about some, some conservation icons here. Now, uh, 
one of the most, I guess one of the most prevalent images of conservation is the red-eyed tree frog. It's pretty much everywhere to the point where it's kind of become, to me at least, it's lost its effect. I mean, I've kept them on and off for years, and to be honest, I always, I'm sure I'm probably going to like piss a bunch of people off, but I kind of thought they were overrated <laughs> because you only see them at night. And a yeah. lot of times their colors, their colors will be a lot more subdued depending on what time of day it is, et cetera. But, um, I mean, do you think if people were really more aware of the variety of dart frogs that exist in nature, that there would be a greater concern for their well-being? I do think that goes with any organism. I'm going to spread it to even plants. Uh, there's a lot of plants that are uh, not to derail immediately, <laughs> which I'm pretty good at, but, uh, I think when whenever an animal is given publicity and whenever education rolls into it i think that animal has a greater chance of survival by default um a lot of it is always it's always going to boil down to this it's just half of the reason why i love education people just don't know they don't know it's a problem because they've never heard of it so it really is education and programs and teaching uh these people these things that's how word gets out. Like, oh, this, you know, this is a hellbender. They're endangered or whatever. You know, who even knows what that is? You go up to someone and ask the normal person, you know, the average person, hey, do you know about this? They'll most likely say no. And it really is. It, it, if it's not the poster child, if it's not the polar bear, if it's not something like that, people just don't know. Yeah. It's like so, if, you, yeah. If, if you can't. It almost if you can't market it, you yep. know what I mean? Like yep. certain That's things a huge don't, thing. yeah, certain things just don't sell. I mean, how are you going to sell an obscure brown frog from sure. some country yeah. that is just, uh, you know, might have other issues going on? You know, it, it could be in some sort of political turmoil or, or whatever. Um, you know, it's very, very hard to sell someone on an exotic species that no one has ever heard of and isn't particularly bright and colorful. But to me, yeah. it seems like dart frogs have that ability because of their 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 by and large many species with the, with a few exceptions are, you know, they're 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 amazing to look at and correct. You'd think that you know people would take more of an active interest in conservation, realizing that well we have all these amazing things, but you know again it's 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 a hard sell because a lot of people don't like anything that's creepy crawly, <laughs> even if it is dramatically colored. You know. Yeah, it's kind of funny. I've met a lot of people that are scared of frogs. Yeah. Which just yeah. blows my mind. I just like, I don't know. They're just like, oh, they jump. I'm like, I, yeah. I, yeah, I guess. Yeah. Yes, they do. <laughs> so do cats. I mean, I don't know. I'm not, I'm not sure. I, yeah. But whatever. I, I mean, I, I find that it, it, I guess it takes a certain type of person to have an interest in exotics in general. But I think that, you know, the, the amphibian world, at least to my knowledge, I think has always had a very, very significant conservation attitude it towards it. Because it, it really does, as a whole, yes. I mean, the two sort of go hand in hand. I mean, you, you're not going to, I mean, by and large, most of them are fragile. Mean, all amphibians, realistically, are fragile. I mean, they Correct. are more they susceptible are. to changes in the environment than, you know, for example, than, than we are, you know, or, or many other species. And obviously there are other indicator species that are much more sensitive, but I mean, we have chytrid, we have a global pandemic affecting humans, but we also have this global pandemic that's been going on for over 20 years that very, very people yeah. know about. So, I mean, when I did, um, 
you know, I did some very, very basic, you know, just community outreach at um, my kid's school, actually. And um, I mentioned, you know, the Kittred outbreak. And bear in mind, these kids were young, so it was really just sowing <laughs> the seeds. But it's, you know, if if one child goes home and says, we learned about Kittred, okay, and mommy and daddy go look it up and they realize it, okay, well, it's something that we should be concerned with because it's not... Uh, we're not talking about koalas. We're not talking about polar bears. We're not talking about wolves. We're not talking about pandas. We're, you know, we're talking about much more obscure species here. But when you put it in a greater context, it's, it's to me, it seems like it would be an easy sell. But what, what the hell do I know? Um, <laughs> I mean, now, yep. you, if you, people like warm and fuzzy, that's you, what they like. First and foremost, you are obviously an educator. Now, you've obviously incorporated that pretty significantly into your business because I know a lot of your efforts not only go into providing customer service in terms of the you know the usual day-to-day business making sure everyone gets their order everyone's you know uh, priced correctly etc but you also take an active interest in educating people now do you think that that is something that you could translate into something outside of the business or is that something that you know what's 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 if you're an educator you're always an educator so what do you do, you know, outside of just the day-to-day business that you incorporate that into? So it kind of goes into the next phase. Uh, My company has phases. So we are just now getting out of what's called phase one, um, which is something in the master plan for the business. Um, And in the business plan, the the phase one was basically establishing a hopefully (laughs) successful business um and all that that comes with it you know multiple pages the next kind of step is incorporating that customer service and i'm going to teach you about dart frogs to the next step so okay guys we have all this information what are we going to do with it so that's kind of my important one of my important goals for phase two which starts you know uh probably mid 2021 with the launch of our new website. Um, This is going to be some stuff um, for educational outreach. And the first step of that is one of the, one of the projects I'm putting together with a few other people called the Dindrono project. Um, This is a basically a cornerstone encyclopedia that will be free for anyone to access based on entire basically the hobby history of all of these frogs that we know and love. Um, the, and not to mention tons of information about their, you know, their IUCN red list information. Are they, you know, are they least concerned? Are they critically endangered? Um, what are some, what are some threats? Uh, how, how represented are they in the, in the hobby? So what's their prevalence? Uh, so this this database is going to have a lot of information, and it's not just going to be a basic encyclopedia. Um, so that's one of the steps I'm going to take. Uh, and the next thing that we're going to do is we're going to start donation tiers. Um, so we're going to start in 2021 donating 8% of our net profits to a nonprofit organization, um, an NGO, or some kind of charity that caters to conservation efforts, amphibian foundation, whether it's Tesoros de Colombia, something closer to home, uh, dealing with dart frogs, or, you know, the like. So we're getting together 
uh, a lot of these companies to start working with them into doing something a little bit bigger. And so that's where the customer loyalty comes into play. So when a customer spends money with us, 8% of that sale that month is going to go towards that foundation that we highlight. So we're going to highlight a foundation every month and it's going to rotate uh, by month. And we're going to donate our net sales to them. But it goes a lot further than that. We're also going to do what's called uh, loyalty tiers. So basically when someone spends $5,000 with us, they get 5% off for life. And so that's extended through the life of this company, any order, any time. So it starts at 5,000 and you're saying, that's a lot of money, man. I, I don't want to spend that much money with you. <laughs> but the point is that even money now they can donate. Let's just put to Soros on the spotlight right now. Let's say they're the company of the month. So we're going to donate 8%. But then anybody on our website anywhere can donate to them directly any amount of money they want. But that money also goes towards their loyalty tier for our site. So they don't. So someone could essentially like you, you could go on there. You could say, oh, I'm feeling generous today. I'm going to send them $5,000. I don't touch any of that money. But you now get 5% off all of my stuff for your entire life because you donated 5000 to them. So it's going to be multifold. Um, we're going to start pushing really, really hard for this stuff. So that's just year one. 2022, we're going to up that to 10%. 2023, we're going to up it to 12%. And year four and onward, we're going to up it to 15% of our net sales go towards these companies and uh, nonprofits. And these things, I'm hoping, with tethered with our educational outreach, are going to start actually making a difference for the, for the world. I'm, I've, I've never been small on the vision. The vision's always been there. So Now, what would you say the long-term goal of this program would be? So the long-term of this, this program, in a nutshell, is to just provide more funding and more exposure for these foundations. Um, a lot of the foundations, they don't need our help. You know, they, they like Amphibian Foundation, obviously, they're very well known. They're very well loved. They, they've got great donors, but they're not everybody's like that. Not every company is like that. Some of these NGOs, I mean, I want to start an NGO with Josh Allen uh, and, and uh, Paul Fowler, and we want to save Fantastica Habitat. That may be something that I want to do. Or there's a lot of people in our hobby that have a very good heart for conservation, but there's no outlet. There's no... There's no way besides saying, here's 50 bucks, you know, and then and then that goes somewhere. Where is your money really going? You know, what is it doing? Where's the where's the involvement? There, the end goal is just to be a company that's not out for the profit. Again, my I said it last time. I'm not in this to make millions of dollars. Not like I would, you know, I mean, are you really going to do that with our dogs anyway? But the point oh, is maybe really, well, yeah, <laughs> you find maybe, the right locale. A, <laughs> <laughs> and a lot of people do They're they're You know, I'm not going to I'm not going to point fingers. Snake breeders are going to hate me. But I know a few snake breeders that just breed snakes because they want the money. 
I, I'm, I'm just, I, I know them personally, great people, but they do it because it, you know, th- this money for me, it's never been like that. I love, I want to do something bigger for the world. I want this company to mean something. So I want to foster that customer relationship, give people benefit, say, Hey, you get 10% off my website for all time. And donating to these people can, can help you get to that. I mean, and, and I don't have to touch any money. And besides that, we're going to be donating ourselves as a company for my net profits. So that's something I'm super enthusiastic for. Now, I think that that also accomplishes a second goal, and that is a good marriage between people who are involved with keeping amphibians captive and people who are involved with conservation because, I, I mean... To me, it seems, to me, it seems like there's somewhat of a gap. And one of the, the themes that I kind of like to address throughout this podcast is that there are gaps. And without everyone being on board and kind of going in a, you know, the same direction, it's very easy for issues to become fragmented. Meaning, do conservationists look at hobbyists and say, well, you guys are irresponsible because yep. you're keeping these animals in captivity and do... And do hobbyists look at conservationists to say, well, you're standing in the way of our being able to keep these species. We're the ones who are breeding them in captivity. We are the ones who are identifying them. You know, does it, I feel like this would sort of bring both groups together in a common goal and saying, look, well, this is what we want. We want to be able to protect these species so that we have them forever, but we also want to protect them in a way that they can be managed effectively, meaning regardless of what it is, everywhere in the world, there will always be a demand for something. So rather than turning your back on the issue and saying that it's not there, agree that it's there and move forward in a direction that is agreeable for both parties. Both parties are going to get something out of it. Hobbyists are going to get a greater education. Not-for-profits are going to get the funding that they need to preserve habitat and to, you know, engage in outreach programs. Yep. And you, you pretty much said it better than I did, which gold star. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so, <laughs> I didn't mean to. I didn't, I didn't mean no, to. No, no, you'll be, you'll be the spokesperson now. So oh, no, great. that's great. Yeah. It's no, it's, that's exactly what I'm, I'm trying to accomplish. There are uh, critical, critical gaps that need to be bridged. And I think people want to, people want to bridge them. I, I think that there are several hobbyists that would jump on the opportunity to do something greater but there's just the outlets. They're they're not tangible. Um, so I, I I want to give both parties some kind of benefit, uh, and and that I, I want to grow a community. I've always wanted this to be a community, um, and of course I I would. Nothing in the world makes me happier than preserving natural habitat, and I know that our hobby can potentially put pressure on wild-caught animals like that. I mean, every exotic industry has at some point, or they still are. So there there has to be some push and pull. And I think that that's what I was looking for even before I launched this company was, hey, what am I going to do once the money's there? Or once I, you know, once I'm selling orders in a normal ba- you know, in a normal basis. Once my company is established, what am I going to do to give back? That was that was 
basically my first thought. And I'm not trying to martyrize myself or anything like that. It's really not that. I, I truly, truly, that's what wakes me up in the morning. Well, I that's mean, I, I think that it's, it's you know, aside, aside from being well-intentioned and admirable, which, which it is, but it's also, it's extremely practical because you don't yeah. have either side of the same, you know, I mean, it's a coin. It has two sides to it, but it's still, in, at the end of the day, it's still the same thing. So rather than just everyone, you know, arguing with each other over this, that, and the other thing, you know, just, just agree that it's real, you know, and move forward so that's sustainable. Because I think one of the things that we had started talking about was the sustainability of environments. Now, environments is not necessarily a, a physical environment. Yes, we want to preserve the habitat of species in the wild, but at the same time, we want to preserve our environment, meaning the way that we as humans interact with each other. So by creating a partnership that is sustainable, meaning, okay, well, as hobbyists, we agree to support conservation and conservationists say, well, we agree to support the hobby in ways that we find are appropriate. That makes the hobby and conservation sustainable because now you're not going to have competing legislation. You're not going to have not-for-profits competing with breeders and vice versa, which is only going to ultimately in the end is not going to accomplish anything practical. And I feel like this is a situation yes. where it will. Yep. And that was the goal from the get go. So very true. Mm. <laughs> now, a while back, uh, earlier in the conversation, we had talked about the predation of Ranatomea and the selection um, due to predation. I, I was just thinking, I didn't want to interrupt you before, but can you give me an example of predation pressure that might lead to, um, you know, the different locales of mimics developing? So there are a lot of competing hypotheses. There, a lot of this predation is avian-based predation. So these are birds um, that are that are coming down. They can see the bright colors. You know, apisomatism is, you know, warning coloration. They see that. They recognize it. And they do not engage. Um, so a lot of the dar frogs built up their built up toxic, you know, their toxins from their diet. They don't taste good. They develop avisomatic coloration, and predators don't attack them. Well, some of these, the imitators, are taking this to a a kind of extreme length. They are some of them are actually less toxic than their model, their toxic model species. And this, this could be, um, in, in summer and, and banded imitator. Um, so these, the, the banded imitator are less toxic than the summer are, and they experience similar, similar predation threats, but they're getting away with producing less toxin. And this is a classic Batesian mimicry for you. Um, they're t creating less toxin than their model species, and they're getting away with it. So they're doing very, very well um, in terms of their their prevalence because they are getting more protection and they're using less metabolic energy to produce toxins um, and sequester those alkaloids. So a lot of a lot of the predation pressure is is somewhat locality based. Um, and this could just be because there are different, there's a different ring of predators around there. 
Um, but a driving factor is sexual selection. Um, so there seems to be some genetic variation that is, that is, I guess, more attractive, so to speak, with certain locales. Um, and this could be driving the, the color change as well. So there's a few different hypotheses based on um, predation pressure and also sexual selection that kind of drive the diversification of imitator. Um, because imitator, there, there are so many different kinds of imitator um, and they, they do have a very good distribution uh, it's a very large distribution, and you see in those different pockets different imitations from different frogs, um, but they're all the same species. They can all reproduce with one another. Um, so there are a lot of variables at play, um, but imitator as a whole is a very successful species because it has had the ability to um, it has had the ability to adapt and save metabolic energy based on less toxins being produced than their toxic model species. So I know that probably all sounded like a jumble. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. But... I, I, I actually have a, uh, another question for you, but sure. um, I was originally going to ask you, you know, what sort of, um, on a metabolic level, how much do they save by producing less toxins? Um, I mean, could that have something to do with the, with the sexual selection? I mean, could males and females be more uh, physically, how, how do I put this? Um, are they going to be in better physical condition having saved that energy by not, you know, converting it into toxins? Could that have something to do with why their survival so, is greater than, than say the species that they are imitating? So yes, that is a prevalent hypothesis within the, within the body of literature that they are saving on this uh, production uh, the metabolic production of these these toxins, and they're allocating that for higher reproductive success. Um, it, it's it's interesting though because imitators tend to lay less eggs than their model species. So this is this is another confounding aspect um, found in the literature. If they're laying less, then is there prevalent? Are they really winning that battle? Um, imitators usually usually are laying two eggs at a time. Um, and this is just, this is interesting because those, those two eggs usually always make it to adulthood. Um, so they are showing higher levels of parental care than most of their model species. This is not always true, um, but this is mostly true uh, in terms of variabilis. Great example is like a Highland variabilis um, and, the, and the imitator is the imitator is showing more parental care. Uh, it only has two offspring. They don't always, they're facultative egg feeders, so they don't always tend their young, but they can, um, and it just depends, but they have more energy to do so. So we're seeing high success rates. Um, and even though they're less toxic, remember they're borrowing, they're borrowing that protection from the other toxic model species. So they're also not getting, those two are not getting attacked as much because of their toxic model species. So they're, they are dependent on their toxic model species success in terms of avoiding, well, really predator learning 
um, to have those two offspring make it. So it's a, it's a very, it's a little complicated, but it's a very intricate, uh, it's not a mutualism, obviously, but it's a very intricate system with these imitators and their toxic model species. If one thing were to go wrong, or not wrong per se, but one thing were to change dramatically, that entire system, that niche, that lifestyle for that imitator would collapse. It wouldn't work. Um, so, it's, so it's a very interesting system to study. And honest to God, there is basically no literature on this. Uh, there's a very few papers published about the radiations of imitator. I, I will tell you, though, it, to me, I mean, again, I'm I've followed the, the you know the exotics phenomenon specifically amphibians since I was young, and I've noticed that the amount of literature that is out there now is by and large it, it's it increased exponentially it since has. since the yes. '80s and '90s. I mean, when I was a oh, kid, definitely. we we knew nothing. There was no information out there. Any information that you would find on, say, a dart frog might be a paragraph in an encyclopedia and the scientific name wouldn't match the actual species that was in the illustration, meaning they would have like, you know, Dendrobates tinctorius azureus, and then the scientific name would say, you know, Phyllobates terribilis, or, or it would be completely wrong. So, I mean, on an academic level, uh, you know, were you mentored by anyone who said, hey, well, listen, we have all this research and all this data now that we just didn't have before because I think that a lot of people who are, are you know, younger than myself, you know, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not a member of the academic community, but people like me who aren't might not necessarily realize the amount of information that actually is out there compared to the way it was many years ago. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely on your last point. That's a huge thing. Uh, I taught all my students how to at least search for primary literature. And then I taught them how to read it and how to take away the main ideas in less than 10 minutes. Because a lot of things in our lives are actually based on the scientific method. And they're based on, okay, well, hey, what's your opinion on this? People don't know enough information to even have an opinion which is why I preface a lot of my conversations with, hey, I uh, don't really know about this much, but this is what I do know, you know, and, and that's a safe way to play it. Um, but finding the information or even knowing to look for it or where to look for it is difficult for some people. It's not common knowledge because like you said, 20, 30 years ago, the, the, there was some information out there, of course, about certain topics, but I mean, this, this, some of this stuff is brand new and yeah. people just don't know how to look for it. They don't know how to find it. I, I find it scrolling through Facebook. Yeah. Facebook. I, 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 I don't even want, I don't want to go there, but, um, <laughs> I, I find that, um, if you really look, there is a lot of information out there. However, a lot of the information that is scientifically based isn't necessarily available to the average person. So I yeah. subscribed to a sure. few journals and I would get, I mean, I'm the type of person where I, I, I'm, I'm an old man. All right. I, I mean, I'm only 41, but I'm an old man. I, I can't look at a screen. I have to physically hold a magazine in my hand. I have to hold a journal in my hands and read it. So a lot of the stuff that's online now, um, it just doesn't do it for me. So I was getting journal publications and then they all went online 
so I sort of stopped subscribing, but that's my problem, not anybody else's. Um, but you, you have to pay for it. And a lot of times, you know, if you are a, a collector or a hobbyist and you really want to get access to scientific journal, you might necessarily, you know, it might be something you have to pay for. You have to pay for a subscription and you're going to say, well, why do I want to subscribe to this journal for a year if I only want to read one article? And I had an earlier guest, um, Brianne Ross. She's um, she's actually sort of a colleague of mine, but um, she basically said, "Look, you know, for my because she teaches." She said, "For my students, she said, look, you know, if you really want to know about something, you could you know reach out to the author of the study. They might necessarily get get back to you, but they might say, hey, listen, I, you know, I appreciate your concern for my cause. I'll send you a copy of the article or I'll email you a copy. So it's there. It's just that it's hard to look for. And I think that there's a lot of there's a lot of misinformation, and what really bothers me the most is parroted information. And by parroted, I mean people will take the last thing that somebody said, and that becomes canon. And I, yeah, that's yeah. one of those things that bothers me. I have a lot of people that will, I've heard repeat information without really understanding the process behind it. So let's just well, and I, there, I, and no, go ahead. Not I'm sorry. to interject, not to interject, but like that's, I mean, just even based on what what I know or what I've researched, things change. The scientific community changes all the time. Some things are just blatantly wrong. What if there's only one sub, you know, let's take an example. What if there's only one study on this particular thing? If, if their subject size or if there's any bias or if there's any issues in their methodology, and we may not know that yet, that they may be ignorant to that and that's okay. It may be all wrong. I mean, we don't know. So saying it, it's hard to say that you really know anything as fact. I don't like the word fact. I like the word support or refute a hypothesis. This is the hypothesis, and I and it's supported by this literature, this literature, and this literature. I did a lot of work um, in my terrestrial ecosystems course in grad school, and my professor was a downright genius, and she was like, she gave us some topics and she knew that these topics had conflicting bodies of research, some that were completely opposite. And she was like, well, what's right and what's wrong? And so the whole purpose of that exercise was to see this breadth of information and say, OK, we, we still don't know. The jury's still out because we don't have enough information or, oh, my God, there's so much information for X and there's so much information for Y that we don't know which one is correct because what is correctness? It's based on our current knowledge and our current toolkits, our current methodologies. So a lot of the stuff I can never say is set in stone. There's still a lot to know. I, I, I agree with that. I, you know, I find that one of the things that I've learned throughout my career as a keeper and just as, as an enthusiast is that the more settled in you become with an idea, the the more resistant you are to, to change, meaning yes, it's easier to correct. keep bad habits than it is to develop good habits. And uh, I've tried to keep a more open mind, especially to people who I know have more experience than I do. And I... You know, I was, I don't always engage people on, you know, social media and whatnot because that's not really the type of person I am. I have an Instagram page, but that's really just more for my shameless self promotion of the show. But, <laughs> um, in any event, um, 
I learned something about uh, you know about leaf litter. I you know when I started off keeping dart frogs or restarted, I had kept erratus a few years ago. But um, one of the general misconceptions I think is that the substrate has to be soaking wet. And I had a conversation with another hobbyist who is in another country and has you know not necessarily kept frogs as long as I have, but has kept them more intensely than I have. And this person said, look, you're not realizing that they're not crawling through a swamp constantly. They're on leaf litter. And yes, the ambient humidity is very, very high. But if they want to get off of that saturated substrate, they need some place to go. And the preferred place for that is leaf litter. So I started paying attention to what my frogs were doing. And I looked and I said, okay, well, where are they sitting? And I realized they were sitting on top of the, the, on top of the leaf litter on top of the cork bark, on top of the cocoa huts, they weren't sitting on the substrate. So I figured, yep. okay, I'm going to lower my, my I'm going to lower my misting schedule. I'm going to use a different type of. I was going. I basically I, I tweaked my enclosures so that I wouldn't have, you know, any kind of standing moist substrate to excess, and it made yeah. a difference. The animals just they they looked happier. They took advantage of more of the, you know, of more of the uh, of, of the vivarium. But, you know, had I held that old way of thinking as if it was set in stone, you know, ultimately it would have been a detriment. So I I think that the, you know, you can't be so settled in with one school of thinking because at some point it's going to end up being wrong. Yep. Correct. I think there's a, there's a learning curve for the dart frog thing too, with the, (laughs) with the substrate for sure. So don't, don't ever beat yourself up for that. I mean, a lot of people ask like, Oh, why leaf litter? Like why? And there's, you know, I start listing four or five different things. They're like, oh, my God, <laughs> it's so technical. I'm like, well, I mean, it's a it's a semi-closed system. So and, and you know, bacterial infections, fungal infections, foot rot, those are real things. And I mean, having an anoxic swampy substrate where they're always in contact with water is not a good thing, especially if it's, you know, if it's not aerated, if there's less oxygen. I mean, that, that's breeding a lot of bacteria that is mostly detrimental um, to the dart frog's health. So, yeah, I mean, any, anything like that is it's always important to listen to other people's perspectives and experience, especially when they're more, you know, when they've been in this longer. I mean, a lot of people have been I know people that have been in 20 years and 30 years. And my partner's been in 20 years. I definitely listen to him because I know that I have, I have limited experience. And even when I've been keeping it for 30 years, even if there is someone younger that said, Hey, I have it done this way. Do you think this is good? Or maybe you should try this. I'm it's really working out for me. You know, I may even entertain that. I've never, you know, like you said, you have to be able to change your perspective and change your habits on things um, and be flexible. And, and be open to learning because that's what that's what a lot of this is yeah it's, I mean that's it's all learning that's just one of the issues that I have with people is that you know they I don't like to engage people in arguments you know because you're not always gonna you, you're not always gonna win and sometimes right. it's better to just walk away and you know but I've had you know discussions with people about different ways of keeping certain things um, I was uh, my pet project so to speak is uh, I've always been I've kept blood pythons on and off for years and originally 
the, the the mentality was, well, you have to keep them super warm and super moist. So everyone was putting them in these enclosures that were basically like a swamp. It was soaking wet and it was humid and hot. So what happens? They develop respiratory infections. They yeah. develop, you know, it was, it was a whole nightmare. And, you know, the more I, I said to myself, look, I really want to get to know what is involved in the care of this species. So I made it my business to do so. And I found that there were other ways of, of keeping them. People may disagree with the way I keep them now, and they, they may not, but I, I, I've been keeping them dry. I keep them dry. I keep them on newspaper or craft paper, a couple of hide boxes, water to keep the humidity, you know, within, within reason. I'll keep a big water dish in there, and I keep them around 83, 84, and they're happy. And this was the information that was given to me by people who have successfully propagated them in captivity for a long time. So... Mm-hmm. That said, there was a local shop, and I went in, and the the proprietor had blood pythons, and this person had been dealing with snakes specifically for for a very long time, and I'm looking, and I'm th- I'm seeing, okay, well, this person has the snakes in these sweat boxes of soaking wet substrate, and. I didn't want to say anything because I didn't want to be out of line, but at the same time, I did want to say, hey, listen. I know you're doing this a long time, but you really shouldn't be doing it that way anymore. So it's, mm-hmm. you know, it's you're hard. Gonna, you're you got to tiptoe people. around it sometimes. Yeah, you're going to run into <laughs> people who are resistant. But you know what? It's. Yeah, I mean, if it's for the better, the way I think about it is if it's better, if it's for the betterment of the animal and their health, then I'll say something, you know. If it's just for ego, I'm not going to say anything. Yeah, I know. You know I, but I it, don't it, like but if you know, it. if you know, it's like, okay, if I see a dart frog on soppy wet substrate or if I go into Petco and see a malnourished dart frog from who knows where in, in you know, in 15% humidity, <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah. you know, I, there's, I, there's no excuse for that. I know. <laughs> there, I'm going to say something. I know. So, I mean, that's that's a whole other a yeah, whole other <laughs> moral dilemma in and of itself. I, uh, I mean, yeah. I've, seen, I've seen videos of dart frogs at big box stores and I've seen, uh, I've noticed a lot of the big boxes are trying to get into certain other niches. I mean, I'm, I, I keep tarantulas <laughs> yeah. and I've noticed they've tried to get their paws into that. And it's like, really? Like, can't we just yeah. have this one thing? You know, I yeah, mean, look, right, you, right. you've got dogs, you've got cats, you know, you've got... <laughs> You've got leopard geckos. You've got bearded dragons. Like, just, just let us have this one, please. You right? Know? Yeah, yeah. Of but I, I don't know. It's just <laughs> you never get. I digress. <laughs> yeah. As long as as long as you're not the only human being on the planet, you're always gonna have a problem with somebody. But oh yeah, yeah. So, for sure. um, I mean, we're kind of getting towards the end here. But I mean, are there any you know any closing thoughts or anything that you want to add before we uh, before we wrap up? I, I guess, I mean, I could talk your head off about anything, so I guess I'll close it with actually closing. Uh, I definitely appreciate the opportunity to come on the podcast. That's always fun. Um, so, yeah, thanks for having me. Oh, it's been my pleasure. So, you know, again, everyone, I want to thank Alex from Frog Daddy for being a guest on my show. I hope you caught part one. This is part two. If you didn't catch part one, go back and take a listen. It's been interesting. So to everyone out there, thank you so much. Hope to hear from you again soon.